Hello and welcome to the 1212 Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Haggerty. And before we get into things, I just want to give a massive shout out to our sponsor, Lean Supper Club. Uh, market leader of ready-made lifestyle food brand. They offer breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks and treats. Breakfast pancakes for only $2.50. They're a family-run business. They provide restaurant-quality products all over NI. You're bound to have seen or heard of them before. They're in Spar, Eurospar, Centra, Super Value, Cost Cutters, Vivo Extra. Karen, I guarantee you've heard of them before. Have you tasted any of their shit? Yeah. Unreal? It's good. Yeah. You're talking a favour for like a full a full ready-made dinner. You just pop in the microwave for a few minutes. It's a single person's dream, essentially. Yeah. It's like having your ma in the house, but without all the nagging. <laughs> just a load of your ma's in the fridge, just I ready. Really like my... You like your man, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say we'll get into your man, Dad. That sounds wrong, but we'll we'll talk about them in a wee second because at a wee at a wee meeting with them, or not a meeting, a chat with them uh, a couple of weeks ago. They're they're lovely. Uh, Lean Supper Club, check them out. They're they're all their own individual fridges in all the local supermarkets and stuff. Uh, they have a couples package, ten lunches, ten dinners, two packs of protein bombs for only seventy quid. LeanSupperClub.com. Make sure you check them out. Let's start the show. So this is it. Uh, we're here today, this week, with uh, my wonderful guest, Kieran Lavery. I'm going to call us childhood friends. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. We grew up in the same village. I it could would be awkward if I said no. I know, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. You'd be like, hey, you were a dick growing up. Be a bad start. I know, I know. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah. New good. song out now called Communion. New song, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It's the perfect song to finger to. Uh, that's... Have you ever been told that? No, no, but I do need quotes for the press release. Well, there you go. Perfect so. song to finger to, not including priests. I'm going to take fair that enough. out of there straight away. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, well, that would be the obvious road. Yeah. Talk me through. It, it, it's a beautiful song. It's so highly produced and so well made. What, well, like when you start even thinking of a song, what is the process until it ends up on Spotify with fucking 50 or 60 million views? You have like 100 million views or something, don't you? Or listens on Spotify? Yeah, but it's weird. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, I'm sure you've kind of been in the same place yourself where other people really care about the numbers, but you know that you can't care about the numbers that yeah, much. Because yeah. if you you start you really... Yeah. Hmm. And if you get like bogged down in this this daily check, and I have a thing on, on my phone, it's like Spotify for artists, so you can look kind of like behind the numbers to see where they're coming from. And you, you get to watch the charts doing all of this kind of, you know, the, the really the lovely graphs. rise... But yeah. then you see that dynamic roller coaster fall as well. <laughs> Whenever you're kicked off a couple of playlists, you're just watching it going, "Oh no!" What, what, what? And you just, you know, I don't want to do that thing where I sort of start scrambling. Next thing, I'm like taking my top off to to try to record something funny for socials because it doesn't make a difference. Like, doesn't yeah. doesn't matter at all. So no, I think like in terms of when like I almost remove that process and remove that idea out of my head before I even start writing and with communion it had been sitting for maybe three four what's the longest you've ever sat with a sketch and been like it's just not ready i need to work on this and you kind of keep refining it and come back years to be honest yeah Yeah. there's times where i've come up with a joke and i've been like this is there's something here but it's just not right or i've tried it out on stage and it hasn't got a laugh or it hasn't got what i wanted it to do and then 
I just forget about it and I continue with my normal set or working in a few new jokes that do work. Mm-hmm. And then down the line, I'm like, oh, fuck, do you remember this joke? And then I pull it back out again. And then I go, oh, why didn't I think of this back then? And it's probably experience. And, you know, yeah. just from having done it for so long that you're like, oh, I'll try try this here. Or I'll try that there. And then you try it once or twice and it works. And then mm-hmm. just suddenly clicks and you're like, if only I had done this a few years ago, do you know? But that's it. I was just about to ask you as well. Have you ever had the reversal of that where you... you throw a joke out early, you get like a really good response because right room, right place, right time. But the joke's actually shit. And it's not until later <laughs> on that you kind of find there's no legs in this. This is, I should have actually. Yeah. yeah. Especially di- see when you do solo shows as well, you can almost get away with anything because mm. they know what to expect. They've seen you before or they're a fan of your videos or whatever you've done online. They come and see you and they're like, ah, yeah. Joe, we're here, we're here. This is a great night. So, you can almost get caught up and be like, fuck, I'm brilliant, or this is class, or I've tried all this new stuff and it all worked a treat. Mm -hmm. And then you go back into the real world and do a gig where maybe five people in the audience even know who you are, and it doesn't go so well. And then you're like, why did I put so much emphasis on that solo show? Totally fair. Is the same for you? I suppose it's different in a way for you with songs and stuff, but... Yeah, it's it's almost like there's a really nice cushion with, uh, with releasing music into the world before you kind of have to approach it you know, live, but even then, the like I guess like the only like the the kind of closest comparison would be like opening for someone else because the mm-hmm. audience aren't there to see you. But mm-hmm. the the older that I've become now, I sort of realise I've got nothing to lose, and so mm-hmm. unless you even if you really bomb, people aren't there to see you. They didn't they didn't pay to see you, and so if you're shit. It's fine. They can go get a drink or go talk mm-hmm. to their mate beside them. Whereas if you're if you're even slightly good or there's one memorable thing, then you're kind of winning. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a nice enough platform. And depending on you know who you're opening for, so if it, if it's somebody who's similar in style, then obviously the audience are going to be open to that and they're going to enjoy it. Whereas you know if if I'm opening for fucking Metallica, which I don't want to talk about, um, <laughs> but it would be it would be a disaster to walk out, even just to walk out one person with one instrument. People would, you know, it's it the crowd would hate it immediately, and you would mm. just be like, the door is closed. We mm. will not enjoy this. Uh, See, it's almost like comedy too, isn't it? Where you kind of want people to do a bit of research before they buy a ticket to come to see you. You can't just go, I love the Offspring or I love Jay Z. I'm going to book a ticket here because this is music and you're going to go and it's just everything's going to be brilliant. You kind of have to do your research and go, is this my style of music? Is this what I'm into? Will I enjoy this? Otherwise, you're just wasting your time and your money, aren't you? Kind of. I think a lot of that's down, though, to either whoever books the show and also if you have a manager or a team around you who can sort of protect that and at least kind of, you know, from the get-go or even before things go too far down the road where you're booked for it, someone can step in and go, you're not, you're not supposed to be before Kendrick Lamar. (laughs) It's not going to (laughs) work or else you need to, we need to reevaluate the live show. So there's, there are probably like, there are a few different steps along that path that I think can, can definitely influence that. Although I'm not sure, because like even for example, Nikki was going to watch Kurt Weill last night. Um, not to date this podcast, but, uh, and uh, she was asking me, because I, I was sitting at the computer and she was like, check um, if there's support on. I couldn't find anything online, so I had no clue who was opening the show. So, you know, in that case, it's it's hard to know whose mm. fault it is, because if you're the audience turning up, you might want to know who's on first, but you can't find it online. So mm. you're only going to look once. 
And if you're a fan of whoever the headliner is, you're not going to go. You might even leave it later in the night to go. All right. Most people do. I would. By the way, Nicki Minaj is your wife, isn't it? Yeah. That's who you're talking about, Nicki Minaj. She just does all your research online for you, doesn't she? And then you need to Google, you go Nicki. Oh, it works the other way. I, I'm employed to just Google all you of any show that she's going to. <laughs> just what does Drake's dick look like? <laughs> <laughs> so what is bombing to you then? You talked about like bombing on stage. Is bombing to you like the audience just talking to each other? Yeah. Or, because you see, I always find like the most disrespect an artist receives is the likes of singer-songwriters or acoustic singers in a bar when you may as well just put a CD on. Yeah. It, I, I, I hate when you go into a bar and no one is paying attention to the singer. Mm. That, that, is, that to me is the ultimate disrespect. Is that the same to you? Yeah, I, you know what? I, I think so. Because obviously, again, I think it comes back to the... All, some of that is down to the venue as well. If it is a Friday night and someone is booked to play and fucking... I don't know. Where do people go on a Friday night? I haven't been out on Friday night in years. Thompson's? Thompson's. No. So <laughs> everyone goes to Thompson's at about, what, seven or eight or something? I don't know what time uh, people yeah. go out at. Seven or eight. So you're sipping there on your vodka and Red Bull and if someone is in the corner with an acoustic guitar, it's the wrong place for them anyway. Yeah. And so you're kind of asking for everyone to just chat over them and you're, you're basically saying to that, whoever that person is who's in to play the music, you will be the background noise because we don't have a multi-disc CD player. Again, I haven't been out in years. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what people use. But that that's essentially, I think, kind of, that's what you're going to get if you're yeah. in those places. Whereas if you're in a venue and it's like a dedicated kind of venue that puts on shows, that is terrible. That is, that is heartbreaking to be there and actually see the audience, like, see them turning some other way apart from looking at you is kind of mm. it's almost and especially when you can see them it's an ignorance isn't it well it, I, I guess it's it's like you've lost them so it's it's really yeah. I don't know if it's down to them because there's a part of that that I can look at and think well I'm not doing my job right if if I've lost them within minutes but if I go on and they're already gone mm. like they're not interested then it's there's almost this kind of for a while anyway I'll get it in, in my head where I'm like right I need to I'm going to win them over and so the approach that I used to have, especially when I was doing solo shows, was I'll walk out and just sing something a cappella, either off the mic and just walk around or mm. I'll lift the microphone and just start doing that. Because I remember there was a friend of mine was saying that he went to watch Bonnie Prince Billy, who's a, an American guy, really eccentric singer-songwriter, but kind of weird enough that he's he's he looks like a walrus. But like also kind of straight. Yeah, well... He's, he's he's kind of like somewhere between that and and Doctor Robotnik, right, right. So he's kind of but the big huge mustache thing going on, wild hair but bald, you know, like everyone's dad <laughs> in like the eighties. <laughs> I don't know why that was a style for so long. I remember my granny was uh, m my dad the first time that he kind of shaved his hair in because he's like bald but had hair around the back and sides, yeah. and he used to have it like. I remember seeing pictures. I I don't have any real memories of him having a lot of her around the sides, but I think he did for quite a while. And he, he then started cutting it like closer until he was shaving it. I think he now just shaves it. And he said that my granny was just really annoyed at him. I was like, oh, why don't you just let it grow? Just the uh, Kevin <laughs> from the office. Hulk, look. Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> so your dad's nickname is Boob, isn't it? Boob, yeah. Is that because... It, uh, he has a bald head? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I reckon so. A full player, like it's <laughs> well, no, I, I remember seen everyone's tits neck again. <laughs> just one of them, though. <laughs> <Just one> <laughs> That's unbelievable. I asked him years. This is years ago. I asked him um, why is he called Boob, and he's like, "Because I love them." <laughs> I didn't, never knew how, how to take that, um, which you know doesn't work well in in this day and age. But yeah. I, he was just—he's always been like, it's very tough to get a straight answer on stuff like that. Like I remember when we were growing up as well. He, we were having dinner one night, and he was like, "Okay, we're we're gonna have the chat um, about sex." And I remember thinking at the time, like, uh, but he was always a real joker, so I didn't know what was kind of coming. And he was like, mm. do you know what sex is? And I didn't respond because kind of sat there. So I was like, I don't really know what to say because um, I was 25 and <laughs> not sex <laughs> yet. two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and he was like, oh, that's, that's the time that they get their dinner in Sweden, sex o'clock. And that was it. He just left it. That that was the talk. <laughs> we had the talk. That sums your dad perfectly. <laughs> yeah. I seen him and your mum a few weeks ago at Lurgan Park, and I was getting like all my kids out of the car, and him and your mum like looked at me, and your dad goes, "Fuck me, there's no condoms in your house." And I was like, "There you go, there's Babe Lavery." That just sums him up to a T. Yeah. What a character, like. Yeah, he's um, he's definitely one of those people who it's very much hard on your sleeve, in terms of how overtly emotionally is but also there's the weird conflict of growing up with that in the sons of a generation of like really hard men who talked about nothing cycled everywhere with probably you know like while digging a road at the same time <laughs> and and so he was you know a product of that generation and mm. so he's kind of caught in this weird middle ground where he's very emotional cries at the drop of a hat but also at the same time, he admires like the tough, hard men. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you can see like the inner turmoil, you yeah. know, because like my mum is, would be like very, like kind of quite quiet and reserved. Um, you could talk to my mum about anything. You talk to my dad about anything emotional. He's crying before you are, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's as if it's suddenly it's his trauma. <laughs> and you're like, don't steal my, don't steal my limelight here. Um, so it's kind of it's a weird mix. Although I just think it's that generation. I don't know what mm. what what are your ones like? Do you have you noticed that kind of like t- when you you need step back one generation from yourself and then think about like how your dad came from a generation? Yeah, like my dad, my both my parents. My mom comes from a family of sixteen, and my dad comes from a family of eighteen. Jesus. So I have aunties and uncles that I like would walk past in the street, and I'm like. I'm pretty sure that's my godmother. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Just, I have no idea. I've, I've met them once or twice in my life. But um, I've, I've done a lot of sort of soul searching the past couple of years, especially since like uh, COVID and lockdown and everything. Mm-hmm. And I've had a bit of time to sort of reflect and go, right, what's been my life so far? And I'm hitting 40 next year. And I'm like, I need to just sort of figure out who I am a wee bit more here because mm-hmm. I'm still a wee bit unsure with a few things. And um, basically what I got down to was the fact that when I was thinking of my parents growing up, they, one, came from a place of, like, extreme poverty, you know, which, um, to give the, my, like, grandparents credit, they, you know, fucking did the best they could, which mm-hmm. is what the least you expect from a parent or whatever. But with my mum and dad, they were raised almost by brothers and sisters. It's nothing like how we would have had or, or our kids would have had where it's like you're charred with love and you're told, you know, you're the best and I love you every day and you get hugged and kissed and tucked into bed. You get that? <laughs> my kids get it. <laughs> <laughs> but my parents growing up, they were almost, their, their parents were either too busy having babies or 
trying to make ends meet and stuff. So yeah, what they did was it was just like the older kids took care of the younger kids. Mm-hmm. So it's not like how we have it today where if you don't know something or if you want to find something out, whether it's about breastfeeding or it's about burping a baby or anything like that, you Google it or you, you have yeah, the information yeah. within a second. Do you know what I mean? Whereas our parents growing up, they, nobody even spoke about feelings or anything. Mm-hmm. So that's what I kind of gauged from that was like, my parents, I know for a fact, did the best they could. And that's all you can hope for. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And they were there. They yeah. were there for us all the time. So I'm I'm delighted with that. Like, But I think both our dads were full characters. Like, mm. I think that's one thing they'll be known for when they go is just that they were uh, they were just up for a laugh and up for anything. Yeah. Well, like my, my dad, because he was a milkman whenever we were like, that's all of my life the first kind of like chapter of my life anyway in the first what 15 years maybe he was a milkman so he like knew everyone I just knew him as the person who if we were driving in the car like it was really strange watching because there'd maybe be five cars in a row all coming and he'd be like wave yeah wave 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 wave." and I used to think to myself why doesn't he just hold it out (laughs) just keep it there (laughs) or just have a wee button or something (laughs) doesn't make any sense to go up and down all the time and he would say he still does the same now like I I called out to their house last week and um, there were roadworks going on in Ahagelm and I swear to God if I worked in construction or something I feel like he he would be so proud he would burst. He would really? just implode. It's yeah, the yeah. Ultimate man. If I had like a tool belt, <laughs> <laughs> even if it had a microphone in it, he'd be like, ah. Oh. Um, but we we took the the dogs up the road for a walk, took them back down again, and on the way back down, there were there were two of the the construction worker guys like who were working on the road, um, and you can tell I don't know anything about construction. <laughs> Construction guys working on the road. So they were there just like getting stuff out of the back of their van. And he did that thing that most like most dads who love chatting to people do where he didn't tell me he was going to stop. He just stopped. Mm-hmm. And I had the two dogs and I was just walking on and suddenly turned back and he was in full chat with these two boys. I went into the house, got the dogs, sorted out traits and all that jazz. And then I was like, well, I'm going to go back to Belfast here soon. So I sat for a couple of minutes and thought, he might come back in. I'll be able to set him. I'm off. No, no sign of him. So I went, got the dog, sort of put them in the car, and then again went back in the house to get something else for myself to be like, right, I'll, I'll just usual thing. When in, if I'm going to go in their house, I'm going to take some food with me because I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> like I have food at home. I could stop in a shop. But I need to take three yeah. or four things. So I did that and um, and left. And as I was leaving the street, he was just leaning against the wall, talking to these two boys. And I thought, he is there for the foreseeable until they actually either get in the van yeah. or someone takes like some sort of heavy drill thing out where they can't. <laughs> and, and, he, and he would probably <laughs> still try to talk. <laughs> Fucking loves it. But he's, 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 yeah, he's at that point now where like I think that is the, the milkman mentality of talking to everyone yeah. is just always there. And that's all I knew him as. Just he knew everyone when I was younger. I just thought, oh, my dad knows every single person. And that that's is the kind of job where you would know everyone, isn't it? Especially from the 80s and 90s. Yeah, North Lurgan anyway. And like yeah. I, I used to, uh, whenever I was younger, in like primary school, um, we, we kind of had like a, a rota system where I would work like three nights with him. And we used to, um, I would do the in around, like, behind Lurgan Tack. And then we would go out to Craigavon. 
I remember being like seven or eight. I was so scared of the flats in Craigavon, really? like Aldervale and stuff. Yeah. And like every time we went into Aldervale, it was like there was another house boarded up and we called it the land that time forgot. Yeah. And I, I used to, I remember like sprinting to the flats. There was this one flat in particular. It was like this, like there were a few of them together and you had to go, you bring a crate for this because there must have been a few of the flats that were getting milk. So you had to bring, couldn't, basically the crate was my nemesis because I thought I can't really sprint because yeah. I've got this and this is weighing me down. So I bring the crate to the flat, have to set it down to open the door, hold the door with my foot, slide the crate through. But then there was also an inside door but I was so afraid of getting caught between the two doors that I would then use my, <laughs> I would use my right leg, stretch it out to hold the front door and then open the second door and slide it through with my left foot. And and then there, if there were empties, I'd be like, oh no, it's now reach while holding on. It was fucking like Kama Sutra trying to open doors. And so I, whenever I would get the milk, the bottles out again, I used, if I heard any noise from upstairs, any of the flats, and because it was like a big hollow building, it was like horror movie doors closing, you know, like, that was just a door closing. I would sprint back to the van, put the empties in, lock the door whenever I got in. And then I would either, if I had my homework, I would be doing that on my lap or I would read a magazine because Milkman then had like the magazines as well. So I'd have like shoot magazine or I used to... Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> classics. Um, there was like there was one that I because he used to get paid, he would pay me like three fifty a week. I think it was. Which when I think about now, <laughs> uh, you were all fucking joke. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I used to get in a little envelope. <laughs> I really really enjoyed getting the envelope. But part of it, um, part of the deal with uh, with sort of uh, having those two or three shifts a week, I would give him money then to um, to pay for a subscription for this magazine called Bone Chillers. Right. And so I would either be reading Shoot Magazine or my Bone Chillers magazine that I paid for myself. And I'd be reading that between my knees, trying not to let on that I was afraid, but also so I'd be low enough that I wouldn't really be seen mm-hmm. by anyone in the street because you would have you would have sort of attracted the odd kind of uh, interesting character who would come up to the van and... And the odd time my dad had to like chase people away and stuff. Really? I just remember being fucking petrified while reading a scary book as well. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doubly petrified. <laughs> when you, you're talking about Shoot Magazine there, you were, I always remember you, obviously your brother Sean was football, but you were more Gaelic to me. Is that right? Or did you go into Gaelic later in your teens or what? Because I remember mm. you were both brilliant at football, but I remember you were... The bigger Gaelic player, I think. Is that right? Uh, to be honest, yeah. Well, I, we we played in primary school, and that was you. It was kind of like you were funneled down that that mm. road, and then obviously with the Gaelic club just being like so much of the the kind of epicenter of, especially as a child, that's that's like that's where it's you the went. Center of the village, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's kind of like where you went with all your friends. It's where after you know primary school you would go up one day a week. And my dad was one of the coaches there as well, so of course like. It was just destined to happen that mm-hmm. I'd be playing there. And so I think I spent so many years without even thinking, like, is this what I want to do? I just really enjoyed it because it was mm-hmm. it was kind of, that was a way of socialising as well. And I was fast. I remember just being good because I was fast. And then the older I got, it was like, actually, I don't enjoy this anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like hard work. Isn't it? Yeah, I got to my <laughs> mid-20s and it was just like, I'm really sore. I've got like, I've, I've got arthritis. 
now I'm in my spine and like then around my hips and um and so uh it got to like a stage uh, even as a teenager I would have I, I really struggled to like tie my shoelaces and be able to bend down and put my socks on and stuff. Was that bad? Yeah. 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 It was crap. Fuck. It was really, really bad. And, uh, but it was that thing where I was like 13, 14 at the time and I was playing soccer as well. So the one thing that I did when I was about 16 was like, I'll give up the soccer because kicking a ball on the ground is going to be, is, is more painful than being able to kick one out of my hands. Don't know like the logic behind that sort of made sense <laughs> at the time, but it was like, got to give one up. I'll give that one up. And, continue to play Gaelic but it was just fucking sore I just remember being sore all the time and at least now if I'm sore I'm sore because I'm old yeah, yeah and that's fine you will yeah just a legitimate reason mm. Wait, when when did you start playing music did you play like were you raised on no. music no not at all no no there was there is there a family history of anyone playing an instrument or what well yeah Ivan uh, my uncle Ivan and oh, Paul yeah. they were an easy mate that's right, yeah, like a band, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're like a rock band. Yeah, <laughs> they had they had a couple of albums as well. That their first one was called um, "Not for Wimps," right? And their second one was "Rock Your Brains." Um, they won uh, awards as well. I think they they won some like it was like the best band in in Northern Ireland, and that was around the time of the Troubles as well. That they were touring around Ireland, hell. which is bananas. Yeah. And there were uh, so it was my uncle Ivan and Paul, and then their drummer the Brit. It was a, pro- a Protestant guy that just called the Brit. <laughs> so I don't know whether that like was their their right their safe passage was like you know get the Brit yeah, to talk yeah, to yeah. anybody if they're being stopped. <laughs> um, but I, my uncle Ivan used to tell me these mad stories where because their first gig was in a Hagelin, um like the hall, right? Which is now like the youth club. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But it's now that that kind of like this whatever that sent that community center. So their first gig was up there and my uncle Paul, he couldn't afford a guitar. He was the bass player. So, um, but he had, he had the look nailed and um, I think he wore like leopard skin, like, um, fucking, what do you call like big leggings and leotard stuff? Or like like leotard, yeah, yeah. And, um, but because he couldn't afford a guitar their, for their first gig, he he used a broom shaft and just sang the bass notes <laughs> <laughs> into the microphone. That's fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's mad. But yeah, Ivan, Ivan and Paul were, were probably, I'm not sure if there was anything before that, but they were the, the kind of, they, were, they weren't really like, I wouldn't say, oh, they were massive influence on my career. I just remember seeing their LPs and thinking, That's incredible. Mm. But I, again, I didn't look at it at the time and think, I want to do that. Um, and then there's there's a lot of trad in the family. So Carl uh, plays, I think she plays multiple instruments. Uh, Sinead, Ivan's sister, and Ivan's Sinead, senior daughter. Yeah, I've seen Sinead a few so, times. She plays in the corner house, isn't that right? Yeah, Sinead plays a load of different sessions. Yeah. Uh, she's she's great um, fiddle player. And uh, never seen anyone play a fiddle just like that way while talking to someone at the same time. So she plays it down her arm and is Jeez. able to have a full conversation while playing like a reel which is just bananas. Um, but she'd been playing it for years. Uh, but yeah, I th- I didn't start until I was maybe about 15. It was mm. Stephen Kerr, my brother-in-law. He sort of, Sean, my brother would say that Stephen was kind of like a latter-day Nazi in terms of his level of brainwashing. Right. Um, because he would have, he would have just uh, left all of these CDs on, in my room or in the house with little post-it notes just saying, listen to this, 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 and this. Um, and I was so determined to impress him that I was like, I got to listen to everything. 
and he would send me stuff from like old kind of singer songwriters from like 60s 70s like Leonard Cohen Jackson Brown Joni Mitchell sure all this kind of stuff getting confused with Jack Rock or Jack Black here in School of Rock <laughs> <laughs> did you like maybe watch that and think that, that was your life <laughs> <laughs> I am having a stroke right now <laughs> it's the arthritis <laughs> So that just so you were just out to impress him then you were just like he was obviously an older influence and you were just like yeah pretty much that's what I was like with my cousin Dermy with the Prodigy yeah I used to run about listening to the Prodigy and he was a full like fucking I'm gonna say he had but I don't know if he he was into drugs and stuff back then but it was that kind of you know era yeah and I was just this wee older boy in mass every Sunday and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started suddenly just listening to the prodigy just because I wanted to impress him because mm-hmm. he was my older cousin. Yeah, and I was the same. And I was running about just like, ooh, ah, you fucking. Did you like the music, or do you remember liking it, or do you just remember thinking? No, I he'll don't be think impressed? so. I remember even listening back to it now. I'm like, I don't want anyone to catch me listening to this. Do you know what I mean? I don't <laughs> want to be a full dance head. Like, yeah. but it, it's nostalgic for me. Yeah, but I did. I do enjoy a couple of their songs, do you know, like mm. Firestarter and Breathe and all the classics, yeah, yeah, yeah. like. But I, I mostly listen to them. Like he caught me out one time and he brought me up to his room and he was like, "What do you think of her?" And I was like, "Oh, I was just trying to impress him." I was like, "She's stunning." And he goes, "That's the lead singer and prodigy <laughs> fruit." And I was like, "Fuck's sake, Dick, just you know, <laughs> just fuck folly back first. Thought he showed you Hanson. <laughs> Show me the wee drummer, Hanson." <laughs> Not only a boy, but a fucking nine years old. <laughs> what are you <laughs> Midwank. <laughs> Sorry, we'll probably cut that out. No, <laughs> just joking. Uh, so you, is this how Captain Kennedy started then? Or how yeah, did Captain kind of. Kennedy start? Yeah, that was pretty much it. Like I had a, I had a, a um, McGurk, my best mate that we, we met when we were 11. We were both really into music, but, uh, and he started playing drums whenever, um, I think we were about 15, 16, I started playing guitar at the same time. And so around that time as well, that's when I was being brainwashed by Jack Black in <laughs> in School of Rock, yeah. and uh, which is a weird time because it was film was made years later. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so I was kind of, uh, myself and McGurk, we had like this garage band where we would just play a load of Green Day songs. And... Um, random like it was just like all instrumental stuff I wasn't really a great electric guitar player but I think I was bought an electric guitar for Christmas one year it was one of those Easton's ones where our no, Argos was a brush shaft no no no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no? I, it, that would have been better than what I was doing it was like one of those Argos you know the Argos kind of guitar package that you get where you get like yeah. a guitar a soft case an, an amp, amp and, yeah, you practically get like stuff. everything apart from fucking somebody to play it for you so yeah. um so yeah I, I had one of those guitars um and so we used to just sit in his garage and um and it was basically just a hu- huge like garage like big fucking tool shed kind of stuff and we were just shoved in the middle of it playing a load of instrumental versions of songs that we really liked because I was too shy to sing and he didn't want to sing. So and then we had a friend of ours, Kieran Mackle, who um, he played bass. So the three of us were just staring at each other playing Green Day songs without anyone singing. And then we recorded a tape of it and we sent it. This is the lamest story ever. Um, we sent it to uh, a guy in the band called The Shadows who were Cliff Richard's band. Right. And we sent it to him. I don't know why. I think it was to see if he wanted to sign us I, we didn't know what the fuck well, like what that yeah. was but somebody got his address 
sent him a tape and a letter and he, fair play, like he replied and was just like, keep up the good work, lads. He had to listen to some shitty recording. We recorded it through a CD player. Right. Or through like a tape deck. Mm. It was just the live in the room. Built into the yeah, yeah. CD player. Yeah. Totally crap. But fair play, this guy from England replied to us and was like, you know, keep up the good work. I didn't listen to The Shadows until I was about 30 and then realized that that's who the shadows were. They were mm. Cliff Richards fucking backing band. So, um, so yeah, so we went from there and then, uh, and then Stephen, again, brother-in-law, Jack Black, he, uh, he had, he found out that we were sort of just, we had this little garage thing and then he wanted to come in. And, um, and so then we sort of traded a lot of the instruments for like more acoustic stuff. And then that was sort of, sort of, put Captain Kennedy together over a course of maybe a year or two but it was always just evolved I it was just one of those things where I think at the time the Cayley House was starting to run gigs again mm -hmm. and Cheers down the road in Largan was starting to run gigs and suddenly there was like you, and the Railway Bar was running shows and there was like a little bit of a scene you feel like an old man here don't you I know it's scary yeah yeah because none of them they don't exist anymore don't the exist Railway it. does like but yeah the rest of them don't no I, I was in the Railway like maybe the last time was when it was renovated and it was weird, it looked like an S&M bar. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my first gigs in Lurgan, I did the Edinburgh Fringe and then I came back and I think I, there was like a wee write-up in the Lurgan Mail because mm. I maybe posted somewhere in Bebo or something, whatever the fuck was around at the time, of me doing gigs. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you guys approached me to do like MC yeah. in the railway, I think it was. So I just pretty much got up every few songs and told three or four jokes and then got back off the stage and you kept singing. <laughs> I'm so sorry for that. That's such a hard gig. <laughs> That's how I earned my craft. Just the good old days. You're welcome. <laughs> Cheers yes. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you feel so old now. Like it's, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. I think like when I, because I remember McGurk sent me a, a load of songs or else it was Steve. One of the two of them had sent me a load of songs, like old Captain Kennedy songs that they found on their computer on a hard drive somewhere. Yeah, about a year ago. I couldn't listen to them. Really? Aye. I, I don't really like kind of going back anyway. Hmm. I, I sort of find it dangerous almost to get too nostalgic, especially I have enough fucking degrees of existential crisis over my age and hmm. over, <laughs> over kind of aging that I don't want to look back on something and go... That's crap. Oh, really? I want to have the memory of yeah. enjoying it That's and it. not reflect on it and yeah. realize that it, it is something different or it's something mm. else. And so I know Makes those sense. songs are going to be shit. And I, they're not shit. They're not shit. Well, they're I know. Maybe not what you do now, but they're not. They're, yeah, I think yeah. like for the time. I know what you mean. And what we were doing, it was like, oh, that, that, that sort of, that was a really good time. I have more memories of, of it being burning crack rather than kind of coming out thinking, Jesus, the, those those songs changed the world or whatever. Because if I look back on it as from a songwriting perspective, and probably the same if you look back on some of like some of the sketches or jokes that you've written and you try to go back 10 years to think about what you were doing then. Oh, you're horrified? Yeah. So mm. it's best, best to just let it lie and yeah. be like, oh, I'm glad that I'm not still doing the same thing. That's it, yeah. I'd be like that with like watching back old footage, excuse me, of me as well. Whereas I would be like... I remember doing really well at that gig, but I'm not going to watch the video back because I'll just criticize every tiny mm -hmm. thing that I've done wrong. 
And there's no point. And it'll ruin it. Yeah. So why why would I put myself through that? And then you'll beat yourself up and you'll be you'll start to reevaluate everything. It's like it's just a slippery slope. I'll just be like, no, that was that was a good time, just leave it there. Exactly. As long like I said, as I think as long as if I kind of feel like, oh, I'm not doing the same thing now and I feel like I'm trying to constantly uh better at like the craft of writing, then then that's okay for that to be that thing because that was a certain time. It's like everything is just like, it's a little snapshot of a certain time and like the same with recorded music where it's it's like a Polaroid of a certain time of how you felt about something or what was going on or whether it's a reflection of like, oh, it's social commentary or this is what was happening at this time. But that's not going to age well when you drag that into the light in the current day where you're just like, God. Yeah. Can't believe Sean Haggerty blackfaced. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me <laughs> Just eating fucking was it marmalade or what were, what were the golly was it golly golly walks? Golly walks? Was that Yeah, the, so it was like jam jars and jam stuff. Jars? I remember my granny having those. That was wild, wasn't it? That was I, I can't believe that existed. I actually did a gig in the Strand Cinema, I think it was, about three or four years ago. And I think they still had like a framed picture up of a gollywog or s- something like that. Yikes. I need to make a phone call after this. <laughs> <laughs> Get them to take that down if it's still up. It's weird because it's not It's not one of those kind of periods of history that you would want to commemorate in any mm. sort of way. Or even, you know, you can't imagine being on like, what do you call that, that? fucking antique roadshow or something and being like oh I've got three of these yeah, you know yeah. gollywog jam jars I mean it's just wild <laughs> I know, that I know. but I don't know it's strange strange time yeah it really is like but um, we were you in the, the you went to the youth club didn't you mm-hmm. were you part of like the sleepovers and stuff I remember having a few sleepovers up there where you played football till about midnight and then all the adults just went downstairs and the kids were just left to just go with each other and just fucking Lying each other sleeping bags and stuff. Yeah, that was a weird time, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I went to one. I remember I have a memory of one sleepover, and because they had the, they would move a lot of the stuff up onto the stage, mm-hmm. and because it was used also for the preschool, there were a lot of like preschool things up on yeah. stage. The wee tunnel and stuff. Yeah, wasn't yeah. There? Things like that. So I remember there was like a wee slide thing that was up on stage, and I remember going down it. And the the slide came off the stage while I was on it and I crashed onto the ground. And I was at that age as well where it really hurt and I wanted to cry, but I was just surrounded by peers. And so I did not want to seem as if I was hurt. And I remember like having tears in my eyes being like, oh, fine, fine. (laughs) Probably squeakier like, fine, fine, fine. And now it's arthritis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was the the origin story. Um, uh, Yeah, I just remember that. And I remember lying in my sleeping bag with a really sore hip that night being like, I am really sore and I wish I could just go home. But I was... Just the bag up, have a wee cry and then come back out, no? No, I didn't even. I think I went into the corner and kind of like a very classic dramatic sort of thing to do at that age because I remember the disc, the, the discos as well there was always like some drama yeah. you know where somebody was 
dancing with somebody else or somebody was like, kind of fish kissing someone else and if you yeah. were annoyed you would kind of like go over to a corner but make sure that they can see you and then you know your friends would be around you being like it's alright it's alright like, <laughs> it was like fucking like heartbreak high or something wasn't it it was like it, it was almost like the first reality show but it was just in your head where exactly. you were part of some big TV show and well, everything yeah. was going on Because we're fucking weird most of the time I think we're just acting out things from you know like in Wonder Years Pop or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember dancing with a girl in the youth club disco and she had a seizure like mid-dance and somebody came over and was all, why did you hit her? And I was Jesus. like, no, here, she she's epileptic. She had a seizure. And they were like, no, 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 you hit her. I seen this. And this rumour spread around Akigal that I was some fucking, do I just like to slow dance with girls and then just... <laughs> Give them a wee sly dig halfway yeah. through, but uh, yeah, she had a full seizure. Like, so it's Funny on my CV now. I'm like, you know, girls can't even dance with me and they're losing their shit. So <laughs> that's frightening. <laughs> that's though. how I got my wife. <laughs> so I says, so I was like, here, I no said, slow dance <laughs> at our wedding. The first dance, I just says, there is all girls have took seizures dancing with me. <laughs> so, Captain Kennedy, then, how what happened? Like, the overlap between Captain Kennedy and you being solo was that like a a hard conversation you'd have with them or did you just disband uh, it was kind of just over time one of those natural progressions Stephen had left um, and uh, to be fair I think like Stephen was kind of like on his way sort of out of the band like um, full Robbie Williams yeah yeah but yeah. but was just like because he had he had kids and stuff it was like yeah. the only one that, that really had like family and was married and um, and so he was like he was sort of in and out, but more helping. And then eventually just cut himself away because like he organized this whole show for us and um, we didn't credit him at all. Classic rock stars. And, um, and so he was just like, right, I'm out. And that sort of happened over time because there were seven of us at one stage. It was mm. bananas with like Jackson yeah. seven and it just wasn't sustainable. Like you wanted to go play a gig anywhere outside of Lurgan. It was suddenly you're talking about like, right, we got to get at least two cars mm. and all the equipment, all this shit. I always picture like, you know, was it John Candy and Home Alone mm. just in the back of a lorry and these are just all Mumford and Sons and it up just the whole way down oh, to Dublin for a poker, gig. Just playing all the poker yeah, hits. yeah. Christmas Eve, <laughs> helping people get back from the airport. <laughs> yeah, that's all we did. We were eventually side hustle. <laughs> it wasn't bad. What actually probably kept the band going for a while. Yeah. But no, it was just one of those natural things where I knew at that point I think it was twenty five, and I thought right, I want to do this, and I really care, and the rest of the boys I think were kind of in and out. Laura. Stephen's sister was was she kind of had a lot of gigs on as well because Laura's great. Uh, fiddle player and so she was quite busy and there was it was kind of we weren't that busy and so it was you know do you keep doing the Belfast circuit and or do you have a conversation about trying to break England or something and there just wasn't enough I don't think like a sort of collective want to do that I didn't want to start dragging people across so many of you too like what a lot of people don't see is that you have to split your money seven ways Aye. before like after costs yeah I remember we played a show in Auntie Annie's years ago and we got paid in pound coins and the girl <laughs> who organised the show made us stand against a wall and was like one two okay, yeah. three and then <laughs> one two three with a money bag like stand there taking your three quid so we, we just decided at one point right that all goes into a kitty and it pays for petrol and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so that was less embarrassing than being like, sorry, can we split that 20 in uh, yeah. seven ways, please? So, um, so yeah, so it just got to that point where 
everyone sort of had, you know, new jobs or the well, life, isn't it? I you just kind of wanted to do go from teens life to stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's when you have like, I guess, you know, dependence and actual things to pay for. And suddenly the gig that you that you probably played when you were younger, where there was no pressure on this being anything, suddenly became like, right, it's got to if I'm spending a night doing this it's got to make sense I've got to make X amount of money it's I can't be away for longer than this amount of time whatever and there's just no kind of crack in that whereas I knew if I can do this and I can do it on my own I don't have to worry about anyone else of course if I get a phone call it's grand I'm sure it's the same with yourself like you get yeah. a phone call last minute you don't have to go like alright let me hold on and then next thing you're speed dialing yeah, the troops and yeah yeah and there's always you know one or two who are like uh, and then yeah. Yeah. What do you do? And then I suppose if one or two don't fancy it, then is it majority rules, or do you just have to go? Well, we can't get these two to do it. So, well, this is it. It's it's kind of banned politics as well because mm. if you you go ahead and do the show, chances are you could be pissing off two people in your band, and they may never come back. Or and it depends how important they are to the project. But being solo, and I have been solo ever since. Like I I work with other people, like producers and and different live band members, but essentially. If I'm at the core of it, then I don't need to check anyone else unless I'm, you know, yeah. become bipolar and so you know, be, or have it? split personalities. <laughs> I actually watched a documentary about that. There was a guy, um, it's a Netflix one, and this guy, they claimed that he had something like 20, 24, 24 personalities, like different personalities inside himself. They had, they identified like 10 or 11, and then he he just kind of got lazy and started grouping them together. <laughs> it was like, really? oh, there's another five. <laughs> Sounds like Jim Carrey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd imagine that's what goes on in his head. Just oh. 25 people just shouting things at him all I day. Oh, it must be bananas. Like. It must be sad too, though, when you get to your birthday and like none of the 24 people get you a present. <laughs> you're just like, bastards. Yeah. I know. Well, the, the weird thing with that, with that documentary as well, he had an accent for everyone. So it was really interesting watching him drop in and out. But at the same time, I remember I was trying to watch it and not be cynical and think, is this just a grown man hmm. just taking just the piss? About. Yeah. Just doing a wee improv class in his own. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, all these kind of uh, psychiatrists and stuff, you know, taking notes. And they were like, so, you know, Billy, I think his name was, you know, Billy tells about that time. And then he'd be like, and then come out and be like, oh. Billy's not here no more. And it's like, oh, who, who am I talking to now? This is Arthur. And you're like, fuck Jeez. me, come on. And what's this on Netflix? Yeah. I have to look for that. It's what's pretty it interesting. I think it's like the 24 faces of Billy somebody. That's Class. Is it only out? Because I haven't heard about uh, it before. It's been out a wee while. I, yeah. I just kind of like did that usual trawl through Netflix and after about four hours realised I'm going to have to watch something. So put it on four episodes. It is kind of quite strange because I sort of sat, sat on the fence. Like I find it really intriguing if this is an actual thing. Mm-hmm. But there's so much you kind of like you almost have to like have your cynic either on your shoulder or like at different times move it about because yeah. it's like I don't want to be cynical but I can't help call bullshit on some of this stuff yeah you wonder what goes on in some people's heads like bananas yeah I mean there's people having seizures when they're dancing exactly understandable though do you know what I mean when they see my moves <laughs> you want to see my feet under the table <laughs> here before we wrap it up tell us about communion how did that come about what what was the process behind that where did the idea come from um Oh, it's really difficult because the, the song sort of came together over the course, similar to what you were saying about jokes earlier, where it's like it, it came together over the course of a couple of years. And so the original idea wasn't exactly where it ended up getting to. I, I'm quite a nostalgic person anyway. So a lot of the things that I consider now in terms of writing are always based in, you know, uh, from ages of like seven up to 
current day. And I really love looking back on that. And I find it quite interesting in terms of um, talking about that, but as an adult. And so you almost, if you, re if you remove age, I mean, unless, you know, you're talking about anything really weird where if you're just like, we took the bikes out to this place last week and people think, gee, what's this guy? He's 35, 36, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? But I really love being able to reflect on those things because I find like, I uncover a lot of things similar to yeah. what you're saying about reevaluating, being able to have to have to go back in order to write these things. I find that I uncover certain things and how I feel about them as well. And it was quite literally based around the very simple concept of going up to get communion and I would have hit it either roof of my mouth or underneath my tongue and and then kept it and sometimes would have been able to pick it out and roll it up and flick it away or like kind of like see how long I could keep it up the roof of my mouth before it dissolved. That was the very basic idea. And we used to do that all the time. You'd come out of mass and you'd be like, you know, whoever I was with at the time, um, you know, would have been like, we're, you know, and everybody would be standing picking their communion from the top of their mouth, whatever. So that's where the song kind of started. And so it's a very sort of nostalgic look back on that time, but also... Um, it's kind of based around because I am, I I overthink constantly. It's sort of based around the idea of when something is very nice and good, uh, that you still want to nitpick and be like, why is yeah. it good? Why is it nice? Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm a pessimist, so it's it's very much like, when does the bad thing happen? And am I in my own way? If I start to consider the bad thing, why can't I just exist in the in the the present and yeah. not sort of think this is really great, but I'm expecting the fucking to be railroaded here any second. I think that's the the creative in us. I think that makes you just think about things constantly. Mm -hmm. So when you have nothing to think about, you, that's when you start to dissect mm -hmm. all your other thoughts or all the things that are going on in your life. I think that's where it comes from. Maybe. Do we will we expect to see a song in the future about like your dad talking to two construction lads or <laughs> falling off a slide on stage? <laughs> that, would, that would be amazing. See if I flicked on Spotify one day and went into your profile. And get, was just, oh, get those two things into one song. That would be incredible. I will mm. co-write that with you. Yeah, as long as we can that. talk about the seizure, the dance moves. Jesus, no. That'd be great. Leave that one uh, man, fuck it, I could talk to you all day. Thanks a million for coming in. I really appreciate it. We've okay. been trying to do this for, I think... I contacted you about three or four years ago mm -hmm. and you says next year is going to be a big year for me or this year or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it was. And yeah, <laughs> it was I. <laughs> look, at, look at the hits, do you know what I mean? The numbers don't lie. Mm -hmm. But uh, thanks for coming in. We'll do this again another time in the future. Cheers, man. Thank you. Thank you. Lanesupperclub.com as well before we press stop, Dan. Uh, Lanesupperclub.com. Check them out.